Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. Uh, let's get started. Welcome. Anybody here for the first time tonight in the room? Welcome. Anybody that's joining us for the first time on Zoom, welcome to you. I like to begin class by um, trying to help facilitate you making some connections with each other. It's a central part of Buddhism to develop uh, community and hard to develop community when you don't talk to each other and actually meet each other. So I always try to uh, start with some icebreaker introductory topic. Tonight I'm going to talk about the um, Buddha's teaching. Last week I talked about acceptance and the importance of accepting the world as it is and seeing it clearly. Uh, And tonight I'm going to talk about defying uh, and rebelling against the way the world is. You know, kind of the foundation is seeing it clearly and accepting it and then creating a positive change, going against the stream, going against greed and hatred and delusion. There's this, um, I guess, saying that comes from a um, Hindu punk band, Hindu hardcore band named 108 that I've used in some of the against the stream stuff. And it is um, serve the truth, defy the lies. And in, in the Against the Stream book, I, I wrote chapters on serve the truth, defy the lies. And um, I borrowed that from 108, the Hindu hardcore band. Check them out if you like hardcore. 108. So the, the topic for you guys to meet each other and discuss tonight uh, is the second part, defy the lie. And it's plural. There's lots of lies. But like when you reflect on that for yourself, Uh, What are the lies that you're aware of that you're trying to defy? Uh, Whether they are internal, the ways that your mind lies to you about who you are or your worth or your capacity or capability or, or the lies of society, the lies of religion, the lies of politics, the lies of what, what, what is, uh, if you frame it this way for you, What do you feel like you're uh, trying to defy? What are you going against? And this is, uh, and I'll explain it in the Dharma talk later, but this is a core teaching from the Buddha that in order to find happiness and liberation and freedom from suffering, we're going to have to travel against the norm and defy a lot of um, cultural norms and and also internal uh, habitual tendencies. We have to defy our own mind as well as the lies of culture and society and so-called civilization. So what is it for you? What are you defying? And uh, introduce yourself to some people who you don't know yet and discuss defiance in your spiritual practice. I know it's a little um, awkward to... Start speaking to people that you don't know. Um, 
but I hope that you find it useful and that if you come regularly, it will really help you uh, connect and facilitate you meeting people who are here. Uh, and I started doing this years ago and I've done it off and on over the years, partially out of my own experience of coming to meditation groups um, where there was nothing like this done and it was a little too focused on the teacher and uh, in my opinion and um, you, know, you come together and you meditate and you listen to the Dharma talk and you uh, ask a question and then you leave. And you, you know, I would I'd go to those groups sometimes for years and feel like I don't really know anybody there. Um, I meditate with them. Those are the, the old ladies I meditate with on Monday night. That was my, my experience. Um, so I really, I, it is the Buddha's teaching. We take refuge in the potential of our own awakening, that this is something that we can do. And we take refuge in the community of people who are trying to do it. And that we need, it's relational. All of the Buddhist teachings are relational. How do we talk to each other? How do we listen? How do we respond? Uh, what kind of awareness can we bring to uh, what we're saying and why we're saying it? It's so, so central. The Buddha, several places, talks about speech in the Eightfold Path. You know, there's a whole factor, right? Speech, wise communication. And then also in the renunciation, avoiding lying, speaking honestly. And, uh, it's so central. So I hope that it makes sense to you. And I do notice that I feel like the people in the room are sort of forced into it because you're here. And then the people at home on Zoom, some percentage, I don't know, maybe 20% or 15% say, well, I don't have to, so I'm not going to. Um, and I, I'm sure if you're at home on Zoom, it's a little awkward to be like, I'm going to go and talk to these strangers on the computer. Um, but I, I want to continue to, to encourage it. Um, and I hope that it makes sense why. Uh, I'm not just wasting time at the beginning of class. It's really to help you meet each other. Because ultimately, it's not about the teacher and it's about our relationships and establishing and maintaining relationships with people who will encourage you to follow the precepts and support you in your mindfulness, your meditation practices and uh, living an ethical and wise life. And we need those people in our lives. And a lot of what I'm going to talk about tonight is that we don't live in a world that supports this kind of wisdom. Uh, we live, we're, what we're trying to do is counter to um, certainly our society, and, and I think the argument can be uh, all societies everywhere, you know, that uh, the world's societies are based on greed and hatred and delusion, self-centered fear, um, and what we're trying to do is undo that here, and so we need, we need each other to, to do that with. It's one of my favorite topics. I look forward to talking to you more about it, but first we'll meditate, find a way to sit, find a meditative posture, sit upright, relax, find a posture that feels sustainable where you can allow your eyes to close and release tension so that you're sitting in the chair, the cushion, in a posture where your body is balanced. That's somewhat effortless. I need a comfortable way to sit with a understanding that it probably won't continue to be comfortable at some point. Sitting still may become uncomfortable. It's part of what we're learning. 
learning how to be uncomfortable at times. We establish mindfulness, present time, non-judgmental awareness, bringing our full attention to the present time experience of the body sitting. What sensations are here? What are you feeling in your body? And bringing an attitude of friendliness, kindness, self-acceptance. And the Buddha's initial meditation instruction was about bringing awareness to the sensations of the breath. He said, breathing in, know that you're breathing in, feel the breath. Breathing out, know that you're breathing out. Focus the attention on the sensation that the breath creates in the body. In order to do this, we have to disengage from the thinking mind, from spending our time paying attention to thoughts about the future or past. We redirect, connecting and sustaining awareness in the body with the sensations the breath creates with each inhale, each exhale. But important to remember, it's not stopping the mind. It's just no longer paying attention to what the mind is doing. Let it be in the background. Maybe still planning and worrying and fantasizing going on in the mind. Let it be. But keep coming back to the breath.
kind awareness receives what's happening moment to moment. The sensations and emotions and thoughts. And we can choose where we direct our awareness. We don't need the sounds to stop or the emotions or the thoughts to choose to place our awareness on the breath. There's a lot happening in here in this human experience. Part of this first foundation, body awareness, learning to drop out of the thinking mind into the feeling body. Redirecting the attention over and over to the breath.
when your awareness does get involved in your thoughts, bring kindness and interest to what your mind is thinking about. Is it a plan or a memory? A fantasy, a desire, a craving? What's the mood in your heart and mind? And if you're new to this kind of practice, you can keep disengaging from the thoughts, keep coming back to the breath. But the Buddha invited, encouraged us, taught us to bring mindfulness to our whole being. Include the emotions, include the thoughts, all of the sensations in the body, all the sense doors. Inclusive, non-judgmental, present time awareness, not judging what's happening, just receiving it, observing, experiencing with a kind interest. What's happening moment to moment in your heart, your mind, in your body?
investigate the impermanent nature of thought, of sensation, emotion, sound, arising and passing, whatever you're experiencing. Notice how it's changing. And as we become aware of what we're experiencing in the heart, the mind, the body, we also come to know the feeling tones these thoughts have. Pleasant or unpleasant feelings to them, the sensations in the body, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. the sense doors, the emotions, everything that we experience, we feel. Bring awareness to what's happening and how it feels. Then we can begin training our heart to respond with 
tolerance and mercy and compassion to what's unpleasant. Training our heart to let go rather than cling. To release the grasp, the craving, the clinging. That it tends to do all by itself. The way our minds create an I, a me, a mind, a self-centeredness, not your fault. Bring awareness to how impersonal How much of our experience is just the human condition?
kind awareness towards what's happening right now, the thoughts, the sensations, arising and passing. We respond as skillful as we can to our pain with as much compassion, friendliness, and acceptance as we can in this moment. I don't always remember to do this, but um, before I get into the topic, any questions about the meditation practice or how to, how to practice in, in this way, mindfulness-based, mind-heart training? Uh, the question is about um, how much, uh, so in the Eightfold Path, when the Buddha talks about uh, here's the path to training our minds and getting free, uh, he talks about both mindfulness and concentration. The seventh factor is mindfulness, the eighth is concentration. 
and what Ramage is asking about uh, is like how much concentration do we need? Because they are connected. Concentration is the BL, the the simple uh, definition that I would, uh, the difference between concentration in meditation and mindfulness is concentration is being able to direct our attention and keep it where we want it to stay. We're, you know, choosing a single object like the breath or the, the thoughts or but being able to direct your attention and be like, stay with the breath for a while. <laughs> and your, you know, concentration, being able to maintain that without constantly wandering. Mindfulness doesn't need to be that kind of concentrated. Mindfulness is saying open, inclusive, whether it's thoughts or the breath or other sensations or emotions. Mindfulness is inclusive awareness. Concentration is exclusive. Paying attention to one thing and excluding others. Make sense? And so the question that Ramage was asking um, is, you know, he, he said that he read something uh, where somebody was saying, uh, some teacher, and this is common, you get different perspectives and different answers. Uh, how concentrated do we need to be? And he said, first jhana. Jhana is the word for uh, different levels of concentration. When you're in the first jhana, you're very concentrated. You're focused. You can really sort of ignore your mind. Um, I, I forget there's like three or four descriptions of what happens in the first jhana, but it's, it's a fairly concentrated state. So there are schools of thought um, that say, yes, you should really focus on concentration before opening to the open awareness mindfulness. Then there's other schools of thought that say um, a little bit of concentration is useful, but concentration in itself uh, is a little bit dangerous because you can get really attached to the jhana states. And so, uh, you know, yes, they might, you might fall, you know, you might trip and fall into jhanas sometimes, concentration states when you're meditating, but don't put too much emphasis on it because it's, it's really in and of itself can just be a sort of a distraction and a, um, a dead end. There's a lot of, uh, People. I mean, it's one of the things where the, the Buddha had learned the jhanas. He had learned all of these concentration states. And he said, you know, no matter how concentrated you get, it doesn't lead to transformation because you're excluding, you're ignoring, right? Concentration is actually teaching you to ignore. So he included it in the Eightfold Path, but he was, it seems like um, mindfulness was the focus. Without mindfulness, no transformation, no liberation. That, you know, but there is this question, uh, how mindful can we truly be without some concentration? And is it the first jhana, the second jhana? I think it was um, maybe Ajahn Chah and my own lineage and training, although I've studied a lot of the Burmese that might put a bit more focus on the progress of insights and the jhanas and I feel way more influenced by the Thai forest tradition. And some of the Thai forest guys will talk about concentration and getting into the jhanas. But for the most part, the emphasis is on Vipassana, mindfulness, four foundations of mindfulness with um, just a kind of settled attention with the breath. The, maybe it's the lowest level, but you know how concentrated you need to be to read and not lose your place when you're reading. You know that experience where sometimes you're 
so scattered you're so unconcentrated that you, you have to reread those sentences or those you're like you just read it but you didn't comprehend it at all and i was like wait what just happened to that paragraph so really thinking about something else while i was reading that paragraph and you have to start over and be like oh i need to actually pay attention to these words on the page that's i i you know from my perspective that's about how concentrated you need to be to do the four foundations vipassana concentrated enough to know what's happening as it's happening even if it's thoughts arising and but you're here i'm here i can read my own inner experience without losing it without having to come back and be like oh i just lost the whole paragraph so i don't think it's first jhana personally i think first jhana is uh you know i don't know maybe being able to read chapters without ever missing a word or something like that I think that this is really just being able to kind of stay present for like one paragraph at a time. A lower level of presence, concentration, but not so focused that you totally uh, become unaware of the mind itself. This is discussion, it's an important, you know, for those of you who get serious about studying and practicing in this way, it is an important question. And, um, you know, unfortunately, you'll get a lot of different answers from a lot of different teachers, depending on tradition, depending on, uh, you know, their influences. Mine, I kind of feel like low level of concentration, much more emphasis on mindfulness, open, inclusive awareness. And the truth is, and you've done retreat, many of you've done retreat. You know that difference when you've been in silence all day and you've been meditating on the second day and the third day and the fourth day? you're more concentrated and your mindfulness is more bright, is more clear, is more present because you get more of that gathered attention from the sustained meditation. When you're sitting here for 30 minutes, you're never going to go into the jhana in 30 minutes. You know, and that's, I think that's one of the problems with teachers who say you have to have that level. They're setting you up of saying like you can only do true meditation on retreat because you can't get into the first jhana in your 20, 30, 45 minute sitting practice daily. You're just not gonna get there. You'll get there on day three of a meditation retreat or day seven or day 10, or, but you're not gonna get there in 10 minutes. So the level of, of concentration, I think is much lower needed for Vipassana. My opinion, my view. Any other questions about meditation? Okay, I'll jump into the um, topic, defiance. Going against. I felt good about last week. I, I really liked our discussion last week around, or my talk and a little bit of discussion around um, seeing the world clearly and some level of accepting this is the way it is here. We live in a world of greed and a world of hatred and a world of uh, humanity being self-centered. It's normal. And suffering is normal and pain is normal and unavoidable. And, um, 
not being in any delusion about the way it is. So important for us to have the understanding, this is the way it is here because it's so natural for us to feel like, but it shouldn't be this way. And as I said last week, and I feel, I feel that way a lot. It shouldn't be this way. We shouldn't, there shouldn't be all of this violence. There shouldn't be all of this hatred. There shouldn't be all of this oppression. There shouldn't be all of it. Don't you feel that? Like it shouldn't be like this. This is fucked up. School shootings and racism and sexism and classism and homophobia. Like this is fucked up. What's, what's going on with this planet that we live on? So first we have to say, well, it is the way it is. And then part of the Dharma is what can we do about it? Before class, Sebastian was telling me about uh, something that his partner was going through trying to get their uh, passport and that they just kept asking the question, is there anything I can do about it? What can I, is there anything I can do? Uh, you know, when you hit a roadblock over here, is there anything I can do? And it's, I feel like it's what the Buddha taught. It's the Dharma. The Dharma is what can we do about it? The primary focus in Buddhism is uh, what you can do about your own mind, your own heart, your own direct experience. The primary teaching of the Four Noble Truths, it's very interpersonal. What can we do about the greed and hatred and delusion that is in here? So easy to get focused on the world. Like even the examples I gave are about greed and racism and what's going on out there. What about the racism that's going on in here? What about the greed that's going on in here? What about the self-centered fear that my mind is producing? The clinging, the aversion, the, the primary focus is training the mind to go against greed, against hatred, against delusion, even just mindfulness, you see it. Just sitting here and trying to pay attention is so counter to what your mind wants to do, right? You sit here and you tell your mind, hey, pay attention to the breath, the sensations, the emotions. Don't get too involved in the contents of the thoughts. That's the sort of encouragement that we're giving ourselves. And the mind does not obey. And if we obey our minds and we allow the awareness to just go into the worrying and the fear and the resentments and the cravings and the stories, the narratives that the mind creates about who we are and how the world is and how it should be, we suffer. The mind is a suffering creating mechanism, the untrained mind left to its own devices. We'll take everything personal and personalize a whole bunch of shit that's not even about us and suffer at the way that the world is rather than learn to ask, what can I do about it? And in some ways, Buddhism is so optimistic and empowering and, um, you know, on one hand, it's telling us the normal human condition is to suffer. The first noble truth, suffering, normalizes it. That's ordinary. That's what 
everyone is experiencing some levels of suffering. Now, of course, not saying everyone's suffering all of the time or existence is suffering. It's just normalizing that suffering is part of existence for everyone, but that it doesn't have to be. And the Dharma is for those of us who say, you know, I'd rather not suffer. <laughs> I'd rather not be normal. I'd like to rebel against the normal status quo of human suffering. I'd like to uh, take this radical path of actually freeing myself from suffering. I want to defy the causes of suffering. There's three causes of suffering. In the, you know, in the, I, the way I see it, there's three causes of suffering. And the second noble truth, when the Buddha says suffering is normal and it's uh, caused by, second, second noble truth, it's caused by craving, kind of just lumps all of it in to, to one. Craving causes suffering, but craving manifests as craving for pleasure, aversion to pain, cl attachment, clinging, craving for permanence creates suffering because we live in a reality where there's no permanence ever, anywhere. <laughs> everything is transient. Everything is changing, is impermanent. There's three inner causes of, of suffering that when we talk about defiance and uh, we accept that what's going on here is that I live in this body that craves pleasure but craving pleasure causes suffering. I live in this body, this heart, this mind that clings. And we can all have the humility to be like, yep, I do that. My mind does that. I get attached. I get attached to people, to places, to things. I get attached to my own views and opinions of being right. How much have you suffered in your life about being right? About my opinion, my view, my truth my subjective truth. This is what's true. I'm attached to it. And if you don't agree with me, or if you see it differently, I'm going to suffer at you. <laughs> Go fuck yourself. I'm going to suffer at you. And we don't tend to see it like that. We just think, well, I'm fucking right. Here I am again, right. And they're wrong. But being attached to being right is suffering. It's the kind of one of the, the core definitions. You can actually be right and not suffer about it, not be attached to other people agreeing with you or and having that humility of like, I think I'm right, but I could be wrong. Humility is so central. I think I'm right all the time. Looking back at my life, I can see how often I was mistaken <laughs> when I thought I was right. So the three inner causes, craving for pleasure, aversion to pain. And we, again, we just live in this body. It's not your fault that you hate pain. Your body does it all by itself. It's survival instinct. It's fight or flight. It's millions of years of biological evolution of our species. You're born into a system of craving for pleasure, aversion to pain. It's not your fault. It's not a sin. It's not a lack of morality or ethics or 
goodness. It's just the way it is. Everybody has these bodies that crave pleasure and hate pain and this mind that craves pleasure and hates pain and this heart that gets wounded around painful experiences and gets really attached to pleasurable experiences. Craving, aversion, and this mind that we live with that takes everything personally. This ego, self-centered human condition that creates an I, me, mind. The uh, personalizing tendency of the human mind. Doesn't have a lot of, we're not born with a lot of wisdom about, oh, here I am in this human incarnation um, with a mind that takes everything personal. We don't have awareness that it's just the mind that takes everything personal. We think that's who we are. And so then we go around through our life taking everything personal, much of which isn't. Much of our own thoughts, which aren't even personal. It's just the self-centered human mind judging and comparing and feeling unworthy or feeling arrogant or superior or whatever the, you know, stuff that your mind is doing, not really your fault. If you take it personal, you'll suffer so much. That's why we're here. But the more we bring awareness, mindfulness, so the defiance, the rebellion of Buddhism, the opposite of craving and clinging is we have the ability to train our heart and our mind to let go. Non-attachment is really radical. True, not not cold indifference, not detached uh, avoidance. That's not what non-attachment is. Non-attachment is being able to sit here in pain, in the midst of your emotions and your thoughts and your your direct experience being embodied. Non-attachment is an embodied, fully feeling experience that's not clinging to it being different than it is. Not trying to keep any of the impermanent experiences that are coming through our physical, emotional, mental realities. Letting them all arise and pass. Letting them all have a seat at the table. And some we have to be careful for non-attachment and uh, detachment. You, you know, sometimes we can use that term of detachment, which and maybe, we're, you know, it's semantics. What's, what's the difference in your experience between non-attachment and detachment? Mostly just semantics, probably the same, kind of the same thing, right? But when we're talking about rebelling, uh, detachment can be avoidance. It can be like the concentration thing that I was talking about before. You can use... Uh, concentration to avoid and detach and ignore. The encouragement of mindfulness is to don't ignore it, don't detach from it, don't suppress and, and avoid. Be in the midst of your experience without clinging to it. Detachment, it kind of feels like Elvis has left the building. I'm out. 
I'm avoiding rather than I'm here with this and not trying to manipulate, control, or keep what's happening. Just accepting it, full embodied. And this is, this is radical. This isn't going to happen all by itself. And it's long-term training of the mind. This is the Dharma, embodied Dharma, is learning to be with what's happening without clinging to it. And part of that clinging, I think a central part of that, is clinging to it as personal. Our thoughts, the more you meditate, some of you are newer, some of you are seasoned veterans of the meditation experience. The more you meditate in a mindfulness, not in concentrating away, but turning towards your mind, the third foundation, observing your mind, letting your thoughts arise and pass. And how often is your mind giving you bad advice? When you just are sitting there watching your mind and being like, oh, wow, my mind's really encouraging me to suffer about something right now. Saying you should take this personal. You should get mad. You should have a resentment. You should worry. You should be afraid. Why don't you think about your finances for the next 10 minutes? (laughs) Why don't you think about your relationship? Why don't you think about your, you know, body image? Why don't you think about your age? Why don't you think about like, how often is your mind just like, fuck you. I don't want to think about any of that shit. That's all suffering. If I take it personal and I, you know, the the way that the, how often the mind is telling us to worry about what's happening in us or in our lives. So the inner defiance, the inner against the stream, the inner um, is non-attachment and and having this shift in the inner um, narrative and reframing it to see it's not that personal. And part of the investigation is where is this I and me and mine? Where, you know, where, where is this? consciousness that is myself is who i am anatta the buddha's teachings on not self there's not a permanent separate continuous i to be found anywhere in this human condition but because we don't investigate it that much and it it does feel like there's a that feels feels like me (laughs) you know and then on the relative level you know this conversation does have to take place acknowledging that there is relative and ultimate truth part of i'm kind of speaking to the ultimate truth ultimately there is no self to be found in the human condition but on the relative level you're you and i hope you have good boundaries right and you're you and i hope you you know have self-love and and take care of yourself and you know but ultimately it's not that personal and what the human mind does create suffering. And it's not our fault that the human mind creates suffering, but it is our responsibility to rebel against it, to not just accept it, to not just be complacent about like, yeah, what are you going to (laughs) do? 
we're doing what we can do. What can I do? I can meditate. I can train my mind. I can develop wisdom to see through it. To change my relationship to the impermanent reality of everything. I can train my mind, get on the cushion. I can get on retreat. I can get to class. I can listen to the podcast. I can read the books. I can create a new narrative that is a wisdom narrative rather than a self-centered fear narrative about who I am and about what we're doing here. And we need those constant reminders. And unfortunately, it's such a gradual path. Not a quick fix. I'm sorry. Anybody that was hoping that could come and learn a little Buddhism for a couple of weeks and be done with the suffering doesn't work that way. We all, you know, once you've been around here for a while, you see like, okay, I'm getting it theoretically and I'm meditating. I was having a conversation with a friend today that was, you know, humbly acknowledging, like, I've been really practicing so hard for the last five years. Why am I still suffering? He's like, yeah, let's see where you're at. And first of all, I reminded them, you're suffering a lot less now than you were five years ago. You're not done yet. Let's see where you are in the next five years and the next five years and the next five years. That's really how this thing works. Slowly, slowly over the years of our practice, we suffer less and less. We take the mind less and less personally. We have more ability to let go. So the third inner, right, letting, letting go, the radical, counter-instinctual heart training of non-attachment, of not being attached to our own views and opinions, and non-attachment to being right. How much better would your life be if you didn't have to be right? What if you just gave yourself a pass? I don't, I don't need to be right. I don't need to be right. I'm okay if, you know, not being right. I know for me, a lot of my, decrease a lot of my suffering if I just let go of being right, of knowing the right answer. There's that Zen book, uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Suzuki Roshi. And he says, you know, the highest form of Zen enlightenment is not knowing. Don't know mind, he talks about. And just bringing that in of like, I don't know. I think it's like this, but I don't know. I could be wrong. Just that humility in your own internal, I could be wrong. My mind misleads me all the time. I think it's like this, but I don't. What I do know is that I can't trust my mind a lot of the time. It's got, you know, conditioned confusion and self-centered tendencies that uh, makes it somewhat untrustworthy, especially the untrained mind. The longer you meditate, you do become, the mind does develop some wisdom and, and sometimes starts giving you good advice. I hope you're there. Are you there yet? Where sometimes your mind actually says, you know, maybe you should forgive them. How about mindfulness? How about loving kindness? How about some compassion here? 
in the beginning, in my experience anyways, is that all of those were foreign concepts. And then there were years of practice where it's like, I got the concept, but I didn't, my mind was still saying like, no, 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 don't, don't do that. Don't meditate. And I had to just sit there anyways, even though my mind was saying, come on, do something else, anything. Don't just sit there, do something. <laughs> Entertain me. The other internal, uh, I feel like, you know, against the stream defiance is compassion. So non-attachment and compassion of these two life-changing skills that we can develop. Internal actions, not something that we uh, can just, a decision that we can make, but the way that we can train our hearts and our minds to change our relationship to pleasure and pain. And just, again, just sitting in meditation. The more we sit here and be like, yeah, there's all of these discomforts. I'm just going to tolerate them. My ass hurts. My knees hurt. My back hurts. My mind is loud. I'm just going to sit here with this and increase my tolerance for discomfort. Increase my tolerance as I pay attention and acknowledge like, oh, yeah, those are unpleasant thoughts. And those are unpleasant emotions. And those are unpleasant sensations. And I'm not going to distract myself from them. I'm going to turn towards them. I'm going to learn to sit with, be with. I'm going to learn to care about my own unpleasant experience and increase my tolerance and that which leads to mercy not making it worse not causing harm to ourselves because the status quo the normal thing that we humans seem to do is that when we have pain we meet it with hatred and turn it into suffering pain by you know this is the equation this is the, you know, the Buddhist equation, which is um, suffering is pain met with resistance. Now, if you just part, and, and it's kind of the bad news of Buddhism too, is that when we say we can end all of the suffering in our life, there's nowhere that it's saying you can end all of the pain in your life. You just don't have to suffer about the pain in your life if you learn to meet it with compassion. If you learn to accept it and tolerate it and not make it worse by hating it. Easy to say, but again, we're up against um, millions and mi millions of years of biological evolution and compassion is counter-instinctual. Self-compassion is counter to your survival instincts. It is totally natural, normal, and instinctual to hate pain so now here we are over this like i'm going to rebel against my own survival instinct because although it keeps us alive it keeps us fairly unhappy in our life and so compassion as an, an act of engaged defiance of the instinctual tendency to hate pain as we learn to care about it So internally, non-attachment, compassion, and learning to see through the 
I making mine, I me, mine, self-centeredness. Externally, the Dharma teaches us to be generous in a world of selfishness, to be kind in a world of not a lot of kindness, to be compassionate not only internally, which is incredibly radical. There is some level, of, it does seem like there's some level of um, natural compassion for others. Most of us have some level, um, if you're not a complete uh, sociopath, some level of empathy and uh, compassion for others, but just the people that are near and dear to you, really, right? Just the ones that you like. But then Buddhism says, let's expand that. The, the really enlightened heart, the compassionate heart cares about all living beings. This radical uh, intention to treat all beings in the same, with the same love and kindness and compassion that we would our own children. There's that line in the Metta Sutta, where the Buddha says, expand your, radiate kindness over the whole world uh, and cherish all living beings the way the ideal parent would cherish their only child. Imagine that. Like if, for those of you who are parents, you know, fucking impossible. For those of you who aren't parents, you know, fucking impossible. But what a beautiful uh, goal even if i mean maybe it's not impossible maybe i shouldn't be so dismissive of the buddha <laughs> maybe it is maybe you know enlightenment maybe we can get there i'm not sure i'm not convinced that i'm in this lifetime going to get to the place where i have that kind of love and tolerance and compassion for all living beings the way that i do for my own kids i don't you know i have a lot of hope of getting there but i want to try I want to continue to have that sort of uh, aspiration. There's this um, concept in mostly later forms of Buddhism and Mahayana and Vajrayana, like in uh, Tibet and Japan and um, how Buddhism morphed over the centuries. But they came up with this concept of the bodhisattva, this um, ideal that says, uh, I'm going to postpone my own awakening until all, all living beings are, are awakened, are liberated. Out of compassion for the world, I'm going to come back over and over and over to be of service, to be compassionate, to be uh, wisdom in the world, in this kind of reincarnation thing. And I like that the way in Zen Buddhism, I like the, the way they do it best. I've, I've done some of this studying with the Tibetans and they're very serious. They actually believe it. <laughs> very serious about it. Bodhisattvas are real. I like the way that they do it in Japanese Zen. One of the ways that I heard it in Japanese Zen where they say, uh, beings are numberless and I vow to save them all. Suffering is endless and I vow to end it all. Because I just feel like, I know they weren't joking, but I feel like they have kind of a sense of humor about the whole thing. They're just saying like, yes, we're, yes, we're vowing to do something that's impossible. It's endless. We're going to end it all. Numberless, all of them. Just kind of acknowledging that this is an aspiration that we're never going to be able to do. But the aspiration itself is so kind, is so compassionate, so beautiful. 
to have that kind of openness, that kind of compassion for all living beings, not just for the people we like, not just for the near and dear. And in our heart practices, when we're training in forgiveness and compassion and loving kindness, intentionally bringing our enemies into our compassion, into our loving kindness the difficult people, bringing them in and saying, may you be happy, may you be at ease, may you be free. May I learn to care about my enemy's suffering as much as I care about my loved one's suffering. May I learn to care about all living beings the way I care, learn to care about my own included in the all. So bringing uh, our ethics into the world. So radical, such a defiance to say, um, I'm so committed to mindfulness, not only am I going to sit in meditation, train my mind to see clearly, to respond wisely, I'm going to avoid all intoxicants, because, you know, as part of the precepts, the Buddha's teaching and the precepts, I'm going to avoid all recreational intoxicants, because I'm committed to mindfulness. And you can't be mindful and buzzed at the same time. It's just impossible. As soon as you take some intoxicants, it blocks mindfulness. And so this radical uh, teaching of the Buddha that says, I'm going to stay sober so that I can be mindful, so that I have the opportunity to respond wisely to what's happening in every moment. Now, just because you're high or intoxicated doesn't mean you're going to necessarily be unskillful or unkind or cause any harm to anybody, but it does mean that you don't have the ability to completely see what's happening clearly. It's part of the reason why being high feels so good. <laughs> you don't see it clearly and you get a little break from reality and you're like, this is fucking great. I like the world much better through these glasses. It's fucking awesome. But part of the um, spiritual defiance of Buddhism is saying, like, just because it's normal to be intoxicated and avoidant and uh, in the world, I'm not going to participate in that. I'm going to participate in uh, being awake. It's hard enough to be awake sober. It's impossible to be awake when you're not sober. And I'm going to commit to clearly seeing, you know, the, the definition of awake is to see clearly without any obscurations, any uh, things that, that cloud the mind. The term in, in Buddhism is that lead to heedlessness. You know, they're not completely heedful, mindful, not completely present. You know, in our community, uh, a good majority of us are recovering alcoholics, addicts. So this teaching of the Buddha uh, supports us. We need it. We need to uh, be free from intoxicants because we're, uh, you know, crossed that invisible line into addiction. And so it's really supportive. But for Buddhists who take this thing serious that aren't in recovery, that aren't alcoholics or addicts, uh, it's a really radical thing that's being proposed here. Live in this world sober. And this is absolutely the Buddhist teaching. 
the Buddha in his lifetime, as, as well as um, teaching us this internal path of training the heart and the mind to see clearly to end suffering, he also was a bit of an activist and spoke out against the ignorance in the world, spoke out against the racism of the caste system that existed in India then and continues to exist. Same as the kind of race-based oppression that's happening all over the planet. There they had it really systematized in a kind of clear supremacy based on skin color and caste. Not so different than America. Um, they had it justified in their religion. Maybe not so different than what Christians did in the past and in this country and on this planet. Um, but part of his awakening and compassion was to speak out against racism and to be anti-racist. Not just internally, but explicitly, clearly, vehemently. And he got a lot of shit for it because he was breaking down a racist system that supported, you know, the hierarchy of, of his culture. And uh, people didn't like it. And the conditioning, um, you know, what the Buddha created was a hierarchy based on merit, meritocracy. And it was, Buddhism is very hierarchical. It's not egalitarian. It's not some democratic system of like, we're all equal. They're like, no, no, there's, you know, there's a hierarchy here based on who's been at it longer and, you know, has more wisdom and, and there's problems with it. Like Buddhism has problems. <laughs> the system has some problems because just because somebody has been a meditator or a monk or something for a long time, doesn't necessarily mean that they're the wisest person in the room and should have the most power. But what he did do was he said, it doesn't matter what your race or, or gender or uh, background is. It's based on your time. How long have you been involved? And that was radical because in, in, um, in that time, uh, you know, there's, there's a whole group of humans in India and their caste is referred to as untouchables. And he said, you know, even if you're part of... Uh, this, of course, if you're going to become and join our community, then you will be in the hierarchy. And then they had the kind of white supremacist Brahmins coming in and being like, I've got to bow to the untouchable. And so it was this really radical thing that the Buddha created against racism and said, yes, this is a community of uh, meritocracy, not based on color in any way based on action based on engagement likewise uh with um empowering women and creating a uh, order of, of nuns in 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 india in a time where um women in many of the Hindu scenes weren't even let into the temples. And he, his mom and his sister, his ex-wife and his mom came to him and said, okay, Buddha, now that you're enlightened uh, and you're teaching us about all of this wisdom, how about the ladies? Let us in. Because the first, you know, first the, first the guys and it was the Buddha teaching the guys. Uh, and then they showed up and he, there was some dialogue and there was a whole experience with it. But then of course he said, 
let the you know of course women can be enlightened this is insane we're not these bodies this isn't gender is not our identity this is the human condition and he got to see through and rebel against the sexist structure of his culture and empower in a way that had never been done before in that culture and be an ally and a support and a an encouragement and just you know like to us it's like duh of course but it was radical 2600 years ago and maybe maybe it's my own male perspective because i think it's self-evident but i also understand that we live in a um culture where it's still you know sexism continues to be in place in our culture and in every culture all right i've gone on and on it's nine o'clock <laughs> there's nothing incompatible between defying the lies of human ignorance and serving the truth of the enlightened human potential Defiance is renunciation. The effort of avoiding and speaking out against the causes of suffering is always going to be part of the path of spiritual awakening. I hope what I said tonight led to that direction that yes, acceptance and defiance and training our mind is an act of defiance, both internally and externally in this world. Good to see everybody. Thanks for being here. Uh, I'm out for the next three weeks. I'm going to Portugal to teach a retreat. I'm going to stop in England on the way out there to see my teacher, Ajahn Amaro, for a few days. So you're going to have subs on Monday for the next three Mondays. Um, Ward Robinson, who I did some, I trained and he teaches a Friday night class, is going to be here for the next three weeks. Come. Remember, you don't come just for the teacher, you come for each other, you come to meditate, you come to be part of the community, just because I'm not here, don't ditch, um, you know, come, come to class and support each other in, in this, and then I'll be back the first Monday in April, but I'll miss the, the next three weeks. Um, classes, as always, done by donation, please be as generous as you can, our rent on this building has just raised um a little over a thousand dollars a month so uh, we need to do some fundraising whatever you can do to help support against the stream become a monthly supporter give a large one-time donation that's tax deductible whatever you can do please consider doing it um we need your help so thank you in advance for your generosity and uh, see you in a few weeks when I get back. May any goodness that comes from our practice be shared outward in all directions. May we all get as free as possible in this lifetime. And together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Sorry, I went on and didn't get to have any questions, but I was uh, on one, I guess. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.